Hey guys, welcome back to Handling It. I'm your host, Catherine, and as you know, I thought I had my life all figured out, and then I realized I actually didn't. But I'm handling it, and one of the best ways I've learned how to do that is to talk with others about how they're handling their own lives. Well, I hope you're all having a great week. I, for one, am getting more and more excited for summer, and as we head into a new season, I know how tempting it can be to feel the need to buy a new wardrobe, and today we're actually going to be chatting all about that and why you should maybe stay clear of that impulse to buy something new. Aja Barber is a writer, stylist, and consultant based in London, and she's notably known for her work on sustainability in the fashion industry. Last year, I came across Aja's work on social media and was profoundly moved by the way she uses her platform to initiate discussion on the dangers of fast fashion, and by the way she encourages others to hold brands accountable for unethical manufacturing and marketing. It was such a privilege to chat with Aja, and I can't wait for you to hear our conversation, so you know what to do. Turn up the volume, get comfortable, and I hope you enjoy. Well, Aja Barber, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. You're a writer and fashion consultant, and you've made incredible strides in sustainable fashion by simply sparking the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Of course. So you've worked for The Guardian, um, CNN, and, and so many other platforms. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Yeah. So from a young age, I knew that writing was the thing that I was good at. But what I also knew was as a Black girl in the United States, I wasn't being pushed in that direction. Nobody was telling me like, you could be a writer because up until a few years ago, I did not see a lot of women who look like me writing books. Let's just be honest. Like it seemed like Maybe about 10 years ago, I noticed that a lot of my peers started to, to get more writing jobs and started to write books, which would become bestsellers. And then after that, it was sort of like the floodgates were open. But I did not grow up thinking that writing was something that I could do for a living, full time, get paid to do it. I didn't think that I was going to be able to write a book until I was in my 50s. Because when you exist as a marginalized person in this world, you know that there's only so much space for us in these spaces. And so Mm -hmm. um, I generally felt like the world wouldn't want to hear what I had to say until that time period. And I'm actually beating my like own goals by like 12 years because I have a book coming out. Yes, you do, which is absolutely so exciting. Thank you. It's um, called uh, Consumed and it's sort of the story of my life, but also told through the system of buying in the fashion industry and why people should care about these issues and how they relate to feminism and intersectionality and race and just why all this stuff matters. It's, it's about, it's kind of my platform, but put into a book basically. Right. And it's on colonization, climate change, consumerism, and the need for collective change is it's a longer title. <laughs> it's a mouthful. 
<laughs> which is great though, because all of these things, and I don't think a lot of people, honestly, myself included, really realize when, you know, when I hear the word fashion industry, at first thought, I don't really think about all those things and how they're impacted and the history they have within the fashion industry, mm -hmm. um, specifically colonization within the fashion industry, um, and just how climate change and I don't know, the state of the world as we keep moving and moving along, um, how that impacts fashion and consumers. Yeah. Um, so if you were to look at the tag of your t-shirt today, where do you think it would say it was made in? Uh, Indonesia, probably Thailand. Bangladesh. Right. Yeah. There's a reason for that. <laughs> it's called colonialism. Um, and it, it's so pernicious in our society that we don't even really question it. But think about when someone goes, oh, well, you know, that's a really good wage in that country. What are they essentially saying? <laughs> They're saying that somebody from that part of the world should be grateful to make pennies. That's what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And that attitude is so pernicious in our society that we don't question it for a second, but we should. Why is it that this country that is heavy resource rich, heavy labor rich, basically providing something that we all need happens to also be a country where like we willy nilly will say, oh, that person makes, you know, a dollar a day. Well, it's better than nothing. You know what I mean? Like I tell people when it comes to looking at clothing, think about how long it would take you to make that item and then do the math, like whatever the basic wages where you are, like, mm -hmm. you know, in the U S right now, what is the, what is the, um, the, uh, so New York is $15. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people are fighting for 15 still. Right. And I know like Pennsylvania, I swear to you for, well, when I was in high school, for example, it was seven twenty-five, and yeah. I don't think it, you know, has changed much since then. Yeah. So, you know, I tell people if, if you really want to understand this system, try and make an item, whether it be a dress or a scarf or whatever, I want people to get their hands behind the sewing machine because we do that a lot as well. Like the amount of times I go into like a store and some person's like, mm, I couldn't make that. I don't know why it's so expensive. And I want to be like, well, you should, mm -hmm. you should get a sewing machine. You should go and buy the fabric. And I want you to try and recreate that garment with your own hands. And that was kind of how I began to really grasp that even though I knew in the back of my head that the system wasn't fair, it truly wasn't fair. You know, I would see a dress in a store and think, how can this brand possibly sell this dress for $15 when two yards of that fabric should cost that amount? If we are paying every person in the supply chain fairly, from the person who grows the cotton to the person who produces the garment, technically, that dress should cost at least 40 bucks. At least. How is it possible? And I began to realize it isn't. It isn't possible. It isn't possible to sell things full price for that amount and to say that everyone within the supply chain is getting paid because they're not. And a lot of times, you know, people will say, well, you know, it's, it's not really our fault that, you know, this is happening, that there's exploitation. What happens is we work with a factory 
And then the factory will take our order and say that they can deliver it to us, but they can't. And so they'll outsource it to another factory. And then that other factory will outsource it to another factory. And that is when exploitation happens. And so brands kind of wash their hands of it, but two things. No one moves their production overseas to be altruistic. Let it let us just Say everything it what it is. you've heard about that fact is untrue. Nobody is moving their jobs overseas because we want to bring jobs to the people of Bangladesh. No, they're moving their jobs overseas because it is cheaper to make that product, ship it to the United States and put it in stores. That is the only reason why that happens. Do not believe any CEO that tells you that they're doing it because it's a really good thing. That's not why anyone does any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And second of all, when a brand says that they, they, you know, the outsourcing is where the exploitation happens. Sure. I will totally take their word for it. But what I will also say is we have something called the race to the bottom where brands basically race around the world, trying to get the lowest possible price. Now, all clothing is made by human hands until autom automation becomes like the, the way of the world. That's just how it is. We know that humans only work so fast, but the fashion system has sped up so rapidly in the last 20 years that brands have to understand that there is no way that some of these orders that you are asking factories to fulfill can be fulfilled with human labor. That is not exploitative. It doesn't matter which way you slice or dice it, you are not going to get 5 million of a t-shirt from one single factory in a short amount of time and a quick turnover because you got to have more stuff in the store. That's the thing. Like it's always, well, consumers want this and consumers want that. So we are just providing, okay, but the way you've sped up the seasons in the last 20 years, the way you put out new garments in your store every time I visit, don't you think that's maybe sending a subliminal message to the average citizen that we should be buying that way? So there's a lot of like blaming going on, but the people that are making billions of dollars in profit every single year are blaming everyone but themselves while also laughing all the way to the bank. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because just, you know, thoughts I was having as you were talking about different companies and, and charging, you know, so little for items, um, so little for clothing, especially. And it's, you know, we love a good sale. Who doesn't? But I'm curious, do you believe that companies like Amazon and these online retailers that are marketplaces even, that are selling not just clothing, but items at such a low, low, low cost. Is that adding to the problem? Absolutely, 150%. The truth is the average citizen has been tricked into thinking that all the prices that we see are not exploitative. And the lower it goes, the lower people want. You know, I, I consult for all of these small and ethical brands and, so often the biggest complaint is that people do not understand that the prices that they've been paying are exploitative prices. So you go to someone who might have a company where they employ three people, they work with one factory and they know that factory inside and out, and they are paying a living wage to every person within their supply chain. And then somebody takes a $5 dress and goes, 
Why am I going to pay $60 for your dress when I can have this one for five? Why are you overcharging me? And it's like, no, that person isn't overcharging you. The $5 dress person is undercharging you. And they are ripping off every person at every step of the way. And that is why that dress is $5. Because let's be honest, at the end of the day, they have to make a profit. Otherwise, there'd be no point to doing this. So like, they're making a profit, but the person that's paying, paying the price is the person who produces the fabric and gets talked to the bottom barrel price. The person who made the clothing and probably didn't get paid at the start of the pandemic because a lot of brands snuck away from paying their bills during the pandemic. You know, so these people are paying the price. And then those of us in privileged countries in the global north are saying that it's affordable, but it's not affordable for the planet or the people. It's just mm -hmm. affordable for the person who decides that they need that dress that day. Right. Well, and then I guess with things like cost and affordability, I think that connects to the issue of fast fashion. And if you will, because I know fast fashion is becoming more of a, I don't know, global term, but more of a recognized term and concept, but there's still a lot of people that don't know what it is mm -hmm. and definitely don't know all that it entails. So would you mind giving um, just sort of an, introduct an introduction into what fast fashion is? Yeah, fast fashion is rapidly made consumer goods that are made so quickly that there's always exploitation happening because at the beginning of the supply chain, you got to get that cost down. So you got to talk down factories, you got to talk down cotton growers, you got to talk down everyone so that no one's getting paid basically enough money to live off of, but you're getting a good price so that that person is, you know, that brand is talking down people at the beginning. So maybe they're making a t-shirt for $3, you know, start to finish. And then they're selling it to you for $5, but they operate on a cycle that's so quick that the very next week they're offering you another t-shirt and another color. And it's the idea of moving things so quickly that the citizen or consumer feels compelled to participate in a way that's super quick. So one of the things that I, you know, talk about is I remember when clothing was more expensive. Um, mm -hmm. When I was a teenager, we didn't shop like this. We didn't. I'm, right. I'm in my late 30s, um, child of the 80s. At the beginning of the school year, you got two pairs of jeans and that was it. Especially mm -hmm. if your old clothing from last year still fit. Um, that was my, my experience at my socioeconomic background. But this idea that you get new clothing every year and every season, every month even, that's a new thing that we've seen happen in the last 20 years. The average person buys 60% more clothing and wears them like, you know, two to three times currently. I think in the UK, it was something like the average person was wearing their clothing seven times. And that is bananas, but <laughs> it's actually realistic. Like, I, I think people think, oh, I'm not that person. But I think a lot of us have been that person at some point. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And I think right now with the pandemic, one thing 
you know, with all the extra time when the pandemic first started and we were just all like sitting around looking at each other, like, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I started going through my closet and looking at like really just gutting it out, taking mm-hmm. everything out of it and going through it and being like, oh my gosh, I completely forgot I had this and I felt terrible. And I'm not going to lie. Like I found, I found one sweater with like tags still on it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, like, what am I doing? Yeah. And I told myself, I'm like, I'm not shopping for the next year. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Well, that's, that's great. I mean, not everyone has that. It's, it's hard because growing children, if your body changes, you know, that sort of stuff. But I think we do have to come clean with the fact that the vast majority of us have been buying too much clothing too quickly for too long. And I didn't even get to the end of the life cycle. So in the UK, a dump truck of textiles goes to the dump every minute, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Every minute. That's a lot of clothing. I don't know what the statistics are for the U.S., but I'm sure it's probably so much worse. Dear Lord, Um, (laughs) yeah. And what people don't realize is that this issue is causing massive issues within, like, the supply chain. Like, when you give your clothing to a charity, first of all, recognize it's not charity because the secondhand clothing market has always been for profit. Okay. Like it's the, the secondhand clothing world has existed for years. It, it is for profit. And when you think that somebody in another country wants that falling apart t-shirt that you didn't really need, you're leaning into some like saviorism when in actuality we've exploited countries in the global South and we still continue to do so even with that narrative. So mm-hmm. This is what I do know from researching my book. In Accra, Ghana, there is Cantamonto Market, which is the biggest secondhand reseller in the world. And that is where a lot of your clothing ends up. And this system of giving to charity is creating another ecological crisis. Um, I, I don't even know where to begin with it. So... I began to realize that this was an issue when I volunteered at a charity shop in the U.S. in my 20s. I remember thinking, we're all buying too much clothing. And I was somebody who enjoyed buying clothing. And I, I felt that actually changed greatly how I, how I looked at purchasing things because I began to realize when working there that this was becoming an ecological problem. People have no idea how bad it is. Um, in Accra, Ghana... You can find a clothing dump, which basically has like a rotting trash mountain. And it's not just the rotting trash mountain. The clothing ends up in the ocean and washes up on the beach. It's everywhere. It runs into people's neighborhoods, all of the, the dyes and stuff. Don't you? That, that's getting into people's water supplies. And so mm-hmm. when you give something to charity, because we as a society are buying so much fast fashion, most charities are only able to sell 10% of those donations, which means the other 90% is going back to the global South where people do not want it. But we're sitting here going, oh, I did a great thing. I just gave six bags of clothing to charity. And I think people need to realize that like putting it into a charity's bag isn't actually getting rid of the problem. You're just making someone else 
the person who has to deal with the problem. Right. Well, that's like passing your clothes off, like hand-me-downs. <laughs> it's like, here. Well, I, I, I love hand-me-downs, but we don't live in a society where like that has always been acceptable. I grew up wearing hand-me-downs. Oh totally. yeah. But we have a society now where it's, it's very much new, 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 new. I mean, there are always going to be people. One of the things that bothers me is when people sort of blame the fast fashion problem on poor people. Oh, it's, it's, if we didn't have these, no poor people would have clothing. That is not true. People that, you know, live around or below the poverty line have always been more sustainable than other people. Um, People that live around or below the poverty line have always thrifted, have always worn secondhand garments, have always used, you know, reused plastic containers. Right now you see a big push for like this sort of Instagram sustainability where you go out and you buy yourself new bamboo and glass containers to put your leftovers in. Mm -hmm. My mother has never met a plastic container that she has not loved reusing. Like that is not the reality, but I think with the fast fashion problem, people like to say that these systems exist because of poor people, but without middle-class and upper-class dollars, these systems wouldn't actually be profitable in any way. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I think there's a massive misconception. I think we do do this thing in our society where people go, oh, I shopped there because I'm poor. And I'm like, are you actually poor or are you broke? Because I've never been poor a day in my life. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of people that I knew and grew up with have not been poor either. Like that is just it's it's false nobody actually wants to be poor until it comes time to say this is why I participate with a bad system when maybe I don't have to be that person yeah well and I think before you know you were going over like who is uh you know where does the root of this problem come from and I think at least to me um impressionable people in the sense that you know we live in a society where I think with social media too, and you and I were talking beforehand about social media, I think we live in a society where individuals, myself included at times, you know, we tend to look to others for how we're supposed to, you know, go about our own lives. It plays on your insecurities, the fashion systems. That's really what it is. It plays on all of our insecurities that if you buy a new dress, you might get that promotion That person at your office might take you seriously. That person might fall in love with you. You know, consumerism is so entrenched in our culture that we don't even notice it. But like, tell me a movie or a show that you like that doesn't have a makeover scene that doesn't involve tons of shopping. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like, this is the fabric of our society. And we need to rethink what sort of society we want to live in and, and what these systems are doing to the planet. But consumerism is like from a young age it starts being pipelined straight straight to your brain oh yeah well you know when I grew up it was if you want to get together with friends you go to the mall and I know that has changed a lot because you know online shopping is such a thing now but you know when you were younger and you wanted to hang out with people like you go to the mall and, and you walk around and I'm not saying I guess it's it's not bad to shop but don't shop beyond your means, I think is, you know, what I've sort of come to understand. Yeah. I think, um, 
everybody's buying too much clothing. Like I can hold my hand up and say a few years ago, I was definitely that person buying too much clothing. Um, but I think it's so entrenched in our society that people don't even realize, okay, think about the success of like multi-level marketing groups. Like how many times have you been invited to a party that you don't want to go to and felt compelled to buy something that you don't even want or need to support a friend? Like those entire business models play on the fact that people will spend money in order to spend time with a friend. They'll buy something that they don't want because they've been pressured by a friend to buy it. And there's this idea that you're supporting a friend's business when in actuality, like, is that really a business? You know what I mean? You're just Mm -hmm. selling goods to people. And most likely it's people buying things that they don't actually want to buy, but they want to be supportive and they want to be social and they want to hang out with their friends, you know? I've been to a lot of, you know, MLM parties and I have gotten some things I really like, like I've gotten some nice jewelry for a while. There was a lot of like MLM jewelry sellers and Mm -hmm. there were some good pieces, but did I actually need any of that stuff? No, you know, so we have to look at everything in our society and yes, going to the mall, hanging out with a friend, that sort of stuff that me and my dearest friend used to like love to shop together and we had to change the way we hung out together and it wasn't something that we ever said you know what we're just not going to do this anymore I think we just both outgrew it we just sort of were like huh we don't really enjoy this anymore we used to enjoy this but now we don't and that kind of coincided with us just realizing that fast fashion was actually killing the planet and hurting people you know Right. It was a gradual thing. It wasn't like we're never going shopping together again. We just grew to not like it anymore. And, and now we spend time doing things like going to museums together, having picnics together, volunteering together. You know, that's that's how we have lots of fun, to be honest. Like every year, my mother's church, my mother is religious and I'm not, but I do support some of the things that her church does. And every year they do a present drive when we're not in a pandemic. And me and my friend, that's how we like get our shopping time in. It's like buying presents for kids. That's really fun. Definitely. I love that. There are ways that you can participate that don't exactly aid in so much of the harm of our planet. Obviously, there's always going to be people that'll say, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. And to those people, I say, great, I guess I'll just keep buying this way and never change anything about the way I live my life. I always feel like that's such a way of coming into a conversation and just farting on it. It's like, let me come up with something I can say that doesn't actually change anything, which just makes everyone on both sides feel crappy. Mm -hmm. But instead, I'd rather try and come up with something that can make people feel good and some tangible things that people can do so that they can feel inspired it doesn't it doesn't start with like well I'm not going to buy this stuff anymore and I'm only going to buy ethical brands because like let's be honest one person making an individual choice doesn't actually change a system but I do think once you start making those choices I think you start to become more inspired to change the system in bigger ways to sort of start to read about some of the legislation that's going to happen that's going to like 
help the system to be better, to write a letter to your politician, to tell a brand why you are no longer buying from them, to send them an email, to get involved on social media. You know, I don't think that, you know, we're all going to buy our way to a sustainable planet. I don't think that works. You can't really fight this system with like more buying, but what you can do is slow down, start to read, really start to wear your clothing. Like, we had a campaign over here that I think Livia Firth started called 30 Wears. And it was about just wearing your clothing 30 times, which sounds, it sounds ludicrous, but in actuality, we really haven't been wearing our clothing 30 times. And now that I'm aware of that, I, I think I'm actually like, oh yeah, I really didn't used to wear my clothing 30 times. <laughs> yeah, I mean- education and awareness with so many different issues. Like that's how you have to go about it. And that's how you can really make change. It's, you know, just because you do something or you take one sort of attitude on something, it doesn't mean you're going to have this incredible, like instant impact, but as you go about it and as you educate, as you make yourself more aware, you'll make others more aware, possibly inspire them. And I think that's how you can really, um, create a little more change. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you have to realize not everyone's going to be there for your journey. I definitely had friends who were so attached to their identity as consumers that we grew apart when I started to talk about this stuff, but that's okay because I have a lot of friends that aren't attached to their identity as consumers (laughs) that get it. And the truth is I have friends who have basically stopped participating with fast fashion and they didn't even take great fanfare about it. They just stopped. They were like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. So like, I think part of the issue is because consumerism is pumped into our brains at such a young age, we feel like it's a part of our identity. I remember thinking, who will I be if I'm not this person that buys clothing every month? Mm -hmm. I literally had that thought and like, that's pretty sad, but it's true. And who I became was someone who was happier, someone who had more money in my pocket ultimately, because I was spending a lot on fast fashion, somebody who is able to support and champion brands that I think are doing really good work. Um, And somebody who gets more enjoyment out of my wardrobe because it's not a constant onto the next attitude which before it was like, even if I had something that I really loved the next season, I had to make room for other things. Cause I'm mm-hmm. not going to stop shopping. So like, I know I really love this dress and I'll wear it again, but I still need to buy three more dresses. You know, I, I, even in my twenties, I mean, I became a person who had a wedding dress that I would wear to every wedding and it was great. It no longer fits, but it was a designer dress that I had seen on a runway and I had found it on a discount store site, like five years after the fact, it just popped up and this is, this is random. Okay. I'll buy it. And I, every time I wore that dress to a wedding, I get countless compliments from, you know, friends. And I just remember thinking, I don't have to buy a new dress every time I go to a wedding. What a revelation. Yeah. Well, that, that reminds me of uh, Tiffany Haddish with her Oscar dress that she yes. wore 
like repeatedly. I'm like, I love that. Yes. And what a revelation of what an easier life too, because it's stressful to buy things on, you know, under pressure. Uh, I've seen this with loved ones, a person will be like, oh, I'm going to a party. I need something to wear. And do you know, you always end up buying something that you don't end up wearing again. Right. (laughs) I tell people like, I would much rather you shop for joy than shop out of need. And like, for some people, that's how they, they can't afford to, to plan ahead because financially it doesn't work for them. I get that. But like, for most people, I say, if, if you're in a place where you're financially secure, don't wait until you have a wedding to go to to get a great dress. Mm-hmm. Get that great dress because you're going to wear it. You're going to enjoy it. And you won't be rushing around, you know, like your head is on fire when you have an event to go to because you already have a great dress in the back of your closet. Um, it's this whole urgency shopping that fast fashion also works off of. So it's this idea that like you can't even change your mind because it won't be in the store next week. And that's by design as well. You know, when Zara first opened in the UK, people were like, oh, I don't know. I'll think about it and come back next week. And the sales associates were like, well, it won't be here next week. We'll have something different. Right. Well, that's how you got to buy now. Got to buy now. Yeah. Like Instagram too. I know just with, you know, there's so many influencers now um, of so many different (laughs) uh, platforms on um, Instagram, especially though, I I, I see it all the time. Like I'll be scrolling through a story and you see someone in a dress and it's like, swipe up now to get this, you know, limited edition. It'll be gone tomorrow. They're Mm -hmm. dropping like flies. You gotta go. Um, And I think that too, I mean, social media, I think it's so a linear great. path. Yeah. If, if you, if we started buying more clothing in the last 20 years and all evidence points to that, and you look at the rise of social media, it's the same linear path, essentially. Fast fashion would not have had the same cycle without social media. It just, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't have the same impact. You know, this notion that you can only be seen wearing something once on social media. That's a part of the problem. Um, I read a New York Times profile where they followed three groups of teenagers, and that was the general consensus that if it's been seen on on Instagram, can't wear it again. And uh, mm-hmm. that's a real shame because that's really aiding into all of this. And uh, I guess with my platform, I serve to be the voice of dissent. So that when people are thinking that they can't participate in this way, or they can't do this, or they can't do that, actually, you totally can. Like, and here's why, and you don't actually need that dress. And here's why, because so much of like the scrolling, you know, ends up sort of pushing you in a direction of consumption. And with my platform, I want to be the person that's like, you don't need it. Let me hit you with some hard facts that will make you not want to buy something. Oh, yeah. Well, and that brings me to one of my last questions is, you know, we talked about before, I think you had even mentioned it with Instagram, there's within sustainable fashion, um, there's become this Instagram aesthetic where, you know, it becomes how cool and I mean, sustainable fashion is cool, right? But I feel like there doesn't need to be a filter on it. And 
what, what would you recommend for those looking to, you know, who are seeking out an education on sustainable fashion, who want to partake in slow fashion and learn more about the industry and actually, you know, go about incorporating that into their closets, literally. What so I think what of- you're trying to say is that sustainable fashion has become another capitalistic pursuit on Instagram. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so first thing I tell people, please stop buying so much, please, for the love of God, you really don't need it. Like, unless you are a person that does not fit into any of your clothing, please wear the clothing in your closet. That is the first thing that you can do. That is actually a truly sustainable thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing I tell people unsubscribe, unsubscribe from the emails, unfollow people that make you feel compelled to buy things because that's the thing. I don't sell a lot of stuff on my platform. One year, last year, I had one major campaign and it was with a, um, it was with a secondhand clothing online retailer, reseller, which secondhand clothing, that's an awesome way to go about it. It's not the only way, but it is a good way. And it's a, it's a minimal harm way, you know, but the actual system of Instagram and constantly selling and tagging you and, and tagging things, selling things, swipe up to buy. That's the type of stuff that encourages you to spend and buy things that you don't need to buy. And so I do tell people, take a good look at your Instagram feed and ask yourself what the people that you follow, what are they inspiring you to do? Mm -hmm. Are they inspiring you to participate in this system, even though maybe you know in the back of your head that there's something really not great going on there because if they are, then maybe mute them, unfollow them. You probably won't miss them. And then unsubscribe because all of those emails that you get from every person that you've ever bought something from that is encouraging you to buy things that you don't actually need. I remember feeling like reading those emails was a full-time job within itself. (laughs) You know, it's like you open it. It's like, 40% 40% off today only. You better get this dress. Otherwise, you're not going to have another dress ever. You're going to be a big loser. Yeah. You'll be a big <laughs> loser. And everyone else will have a dress and you won't, Aja Barber. And I remember being like, I guess I got to buy it. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> Do I actually want it? No. Do I actually need it? No. No. What am I doing? Well, it told me to buy. Okay. So please unsubscribe, <laughs> uninstall apps, get all that stuff off your phone you're going to free up a lot of brain space. And there's going to be this moment of absolute clarity where you're just like, I should have done this sooner. I, I promise you, I promise you. And then the second thing I say is read, read information about this stuff. Check out, you know, eco age, check out the slow factory, check out my post, follow a bunch of different people that inspire you to be better in these spaces because social media has a lot of effect on you know, what we do and how we participate. And, you know, we try and pretend like we're not actually ruled by it. But I think all of us are, I don't think I'm at all immune to it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, start slow, don't go in thinking, now I need to buy all sustainable clothing, it's gonna cost me so much money. And how will I afford this? Start by like doing less. That's what I would say. Right. Yeah, I I think that's true for so much. Like, don't go into it thinking you instantly have to change the whole entire way you've ever lived. 
um, and that you need to create this whole new version of yourself. Mm-hmm. I think with something like sustainable fashion, it's a very gradual process. You can't just, you know, toss a whole wardrobe and I know, still have I- fast fashion in my wardrobe. Like yeah. that's the thing The people. Okay. So here's another thing. Like Instagram is all about showing you a curated snippet of somebody's life. Yeah, there might be a person with an account where it looks like they have the most sustainable clothing. They've always been so sustainable. Have they? Because I know people that have bagged up every item in their wardrobe and then rebought sustainable clothing. Is that actually sustainable? No, no, it's not. Somebody in Ghana is being stuck with all those bags of clothing. So like, to me, the person that just wears the clothing they already have is engaging in a sustainable practice and not buying tons more. That's the thing, you know, like for me, I still have fast fashion in my wardrobe and I will continue to wear those pieces, you know, until they fall apart until I find someone who really, really wants them and will cherish them until I grow out of them. But it makes no sense to be the person that's like, oh, I have to get rid of all this unsustainable clothing and only buy sustainable clothing because you're actually still continuing the cycle of slashing and burning, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to bring up to for those who have to buy new clothes, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, before you brought up, um, you know, women who are pregnant Or, you know, individuals who maybe, you know, they need a new pant size, a new pair of jeans. Mm -hmm. Where would you recommend turning to, you know, for those items? Mm, I don't really like give out like the shopping advice so much because I really do think consumption is part of the issue. I can tell you personally, for me, like I, um, the clothing that I tend to buy, I think about long-term for myself. So I don't know if I'm going to have a kid or not. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Who knows? When I buy a dress now, I actually think, will this dress accommodate me through a pregnancy if need be? Which is why I tend to wear like a lot of really easy floaty stuff with like you know, elastic waistbands, because I want to wear my clothing for a long time. One of the things that I've noticed when I was, you know, in my 20s was that I changed sizes five times in my adult life. Like I have been, you know, five different sizes. And part of that was I got depressed at one point and I lost a bunch of weight and people kept telling me how great I looked, but I was dying on the inside, you know? So I always tell people, you know, I talk about um, fat acceptance because I'm a plus size person, but also like someone being thin isn't really needs to celebrate them because when I was the thinnest I've ever been in my life, I was miserable and unhappy. And I had just lost my grandmother. It was terrible. So I tell people to think about long-term clothing. Like if you see something that you want, and it's not from the best brand, I'm not going to like come and slap it out of your hand. But what I will say is, do you think that this garment is going to last you 10 years? Do Do you actually think that this piece of clothing that you're holding is built to last? Do you think that at the end of this item's life cycle, that someone in Ghana 
will want it and be able to resell it. Are you being truthful about that? Do you think that this item will hold up for 20 wares? You know, that's what I tell people. You should be looking before you even bring it home to think about, does this item have the possibility of having a long life? Because that's the type of stuff that needs to be left on the rack. The manufacturers need to stop making so much of that stuff because nobody actually really loves cheap clothing that much. Um, and I think it's all about thinking about longevity before you put it into your um, online cart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think de- like, you know, I completely agree. And I think too, with something like pregnancy, for example, you know, if you have a friend or someone, you know, baby clothes, even, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. kids, always kids are always growing. So you always need clothes for them. <laughs> yeah. But reach out to a friend who had a kid, you know, chances are they have a ton of clothes that join a buy nothing group on Facebook. You right. know, there's yeah. tons of, there's tons of resources, you know, secondhand shopping as well. Like there's so much, if you go onto like eBay and type in like lot of baby clothes, you will get like stuff that is like new with tags, like, and you'll, you'll buy all of it. So maybe you like give some to a friend or something, but it's really not that expensive and it's usually in pretty good shape. So we have to become a culture that really looks at these systems and finds new ways to participate, whether it's buying more secondhand, whether it's buying less, whether it's, um, you know, just thinking about ways that you can still be fashionable, but it doesn't always require running to like your nearest high street store and spending a hundred dollars on stuff that you're only going to wear 10 times. We have to rethink all of these systems. And, you know, there's always this idea, should it be on the consumer? Why is it on the consumer? It should be on the businesses in an ideal world. It absolutely should be on the businesses and they should be regulated. But I don't think that we are going to get the regulation that we want and need without consumer interest. Mm -hmm. I think that people are very naive about thinking that lawmakers are going to take up this cause without us putting pressure on both lawmakers and the business. Because here's the thing, a lot of these mega multinational fast fashion corporations are more powerful than some of the governments that they manufacture in. Mm -hmm. When you are responsible for the GDP of certain countries, who's going to regulate you? Exactly. So in some ways it's gotta be us. It's gotta be. And like, no, I don't like the idea of this responsibility falling on consumers any more than the next person, but I know how much money is at stake here. And I know that a lot of our lawmakers are less hesitant to critique some of these systems because there's things in it for them as well, which means that it has to come from consumer pressure when a lot of these businesses stop being so astronomically profitable, they will lose the ability to curry favor with how laws are made. Right. Well, cause at the end of the day, you know, the consumers are the ones that have the dollars to spend. And I think, you know, taking responsibility for that, while there should be a lot of responsibility on these big corporations and companies that, you know, are manufacturing these clothes and and so forth. But I I think, you know, 
having the dollar and we sort of have a little bit of an upper hand with that and in, in changing the direction of the industry and where it's headed. Yeah. And, and nothing ever changes for the fashion industry, unfortunately, because we've seen it, we've seen, you know, uh, deregulation and all this manufacturing go to China and then people decided that Bangladesh and India was cheaper so then it went there and now people are looking at Ethiopia as the next manufacturing hub and there is no basic wage in Ethiopia which means that that's where you can really really exploit people so the fashion industry has always moved from country to country depending on where it feels its bread is better buttered. And that's a very hard thing to regulate. And so we sort of have to have a change in how we are looking at these systems and how we play with them. Because this idea that you can just do what you want and not change anything about the way you live your life is actually harming all of us. Mm -hmm. I would love to be able to eradicate this idea that every couple of years a building collapses on innocent people who shouldn't be forced to work under those conditions. That is what I would love to eradicate within my lifetime. And it's been going on for hundreds of years. Triangle Shirt Race Factory is a great example of that. You Mm -hmm. know, so people need to understand that this has always been the way the system has operated. And perhaps we can maybe be the generation that changes that system for the better. Definitely. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, Aja, with your new book coming out, I am so excited for that to drop. It comes out in September, correct? Yes, it does. Thank you for saying that. I feel like it's a lot of pressure to like, (laughs) it's like, I'm so excited about your book. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, it's great that people are excited, but I've also just had this enormous pressure to be like the book, but there's actually so many great books out there. You know, mm-hmm. and what I hope to do is to just sort of get people interested and, and then set them off on a journey of their own because you're not going to get all your information from one book. It, it, there's no possible way because the system is so big. I mean, we talk a lot about certain manufacturing hubs, um, Bangladesh being one of them, but in actuality, El Salvador manufactures, you know, Uh, Cambodia manufacturers, Pakistan manufacturers. There are so many countries where manufacturing happens and not everything that happens there is good or right by the people. Um, You just hear about some countries more than others. When when the pay up campaign launched at the beginning of lockdowns because brands wouldn't pay for the clothing they had already produced with the factories, That sort of actions happened in Bulgaria, where my friend Laura Jean is from. That is where we produce our clothing. So many luxury brands walked away from paying for their clothing that was made in Bulgaria. And one of the things that I experienced was I have a collab with Laura Jean where we make some clothes. And uh, one of the things that I experienced was the factory that we work with was like, we really hope that you guys will come back this year because we're, we're in a really tight situation, basically. Like all these major luxury brands have walked away from paying us. You all are great because you pay us really fairly and you always pay on time. Mm-hmm. And here I am thinking, I am so mad that like these billionaire companies are exploiting people and I 
not a billionaire, not a millionaire, would never exploit anyone. And that's what makes me really furious, to be honest. Oh, 100%. It makes me mad, you know, even yeah. just as a consumer, it's, it's hurtful. You just with so many things, even beyond fashion, you know, we've talked about in the past with skincare and beauty and, and all of that, you really want to trust the products that you're buying and how they're made are, you know, that they're ethically made and that they're good for you and they're not going to do any harm to you. But unfortunately, that's just, it's not the case. I say trust no corporation, trust workers instead. If somebody, the thing is, when a corporation says, oh, we're so great, we manufacture here because we're so altruistic and wonderful, would a garment worker say that about you? Would they say that you greatly improve their life with your business model? No, they wouldn't. Don't trust them. I, I think this idea that we should put our trust into corporations is really dangerous. There's a great documentary called the corporation, and there's actually a part two version. So the corporation came out in the early 2000s, which means that it's old now. So they've done an updated version, which I need to watch because it's it, that that documentary changed my life. Naomi Klein is in it. Um, and basically the, the, the notion behind the documentary is a corporation can act like a person in court, but if a corporation were a person, it would be a psychopath. Because Mm -hmm. a corporation can only act in its own best interest. It can't have feelings, but yet it can act like a person. So if that means that a corporation needs to ruin the environment in order to make a profit, of course, they're going to do that. You know, that's the thing. That is why you cannot put your trust into brands and brand identity. You know, if you don't know the inner workings of that company. If that company is manufacturing, and I'd say, you know, five additional countries, you should be suspicious, you know, like, but unfortunately, I do find that because corporations tend to humanize themselves through social media, you know, so like, when they lie to the general public, they'll be like, we made a mistake. And it's like, that's interesting. You have an entire branch of sustainability and I'm sure you were paying several scientists to work for your corporation. And I'm pretty sure that 10 different people have to sign off on every social media post. So are you sure that this was a mistake? Cause it seems like that's a pretty deliberate move. You know, corporations will use Instagram to humanize themselves and act like it isn't a team of 20 people running their social media, but instead just one person and you should be nice to them. You don't right. have to be nice to a corporation. Mm-hmm. It's not a human. It's a group of humans turning a sizable profit for another group of humans. Exactly. Like when you look at it, you know, black and white, it's right there. And I think there are a lot of issues at, at play within the fashion industry and, you know, with sustainability too. And I think as we continue to evolve, I, I think the pandemic is has greatly impacted the fashion industry um, during the moment we're in with so much online shopping now more than ever, because people don't want to go into stores. Um, I don't know if it's probably further adding to the problem of fast fashion. Maybe, I don't know. I don't have the, the facts. Well, so the issue bad. for me is that I think we've never been able to identify with people who aren't within our immediate socioeconomic 
you know, background countries speak the same language as us, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, my, this whole time we're all staying home. Right. And we're all like, you know, uh, isolating and not seeing our friends and staying safe. That's great. Except like, what about people in factories? Do they not need to social distance, you know, in, in right. the UK and, and Leicester, you know, Boohoo, which has been making a tidy profit during this, had an outbreak of COVID in one of their factories, you know, mm-hmm. um, Amazon, same thing. So like, we, we think about these actions as it only pertains to us, when in actuality, like an Amazon worker should be considered an essential worker, you know, because mm-hmm. obviously people are buying things that they don't need, but people are buying things that they do need from Amazon as well. Right. And so we tend to sort of not value certain labor, but then also pretend like it's not a risky job this person's doing. I remember seeing someone within the sustainable fashion sphere, like applauding Sara for like, they're making masks. Isn't that great? Not really, because they're turning a profit and they're putting their garment workers at risk. So mm-hmm. unless it's like medical grade masks, do we really need this? Do we really need to be applauding this billionaire for this action? I don't think so. Right. Yeah. I just think we ask too little of corporations and we treat them like they're humans, but they're not. And we shouldn't do that because it's dangerous. Right. I think like you said before, there's no there's no empathy. And I feel like it's because there's no soul within that. (laughs) Um, it could just be a brain and a body, you know, no soul. And I think that, you know, it's clearly reflected in, you know, how workers are compensated, how they're treated, working conditions, all of it. When you really, you know, peel back the filter and look at the nitty gritty and everything that's going on, um, behind the curtain, That's what happens when so many of our products are made 5,000 miles away, you Mm -hmm. know, like I think that people lack a certain connection to their clothing now because they don't know anything about how it was made and maybe it passed through 10 different hands before it reached them, you know, where you saw in the UK when Topshop got bought by ASOS and like, Mm -hmm. Uh, ASOS ended up laying off so many people because they're going to close a bunch of top shop stores. People were really upset. They were like, my friend lost their job. And it's like, okay, but can we also share some of that outrage for like people that live, you know, 5,000 miles away who make our clothing, who deal with this sort of thing all the time when like brands decide to not pay for stuff. Right. So yeah, we need to have more empathy for for everyone within the supply chain, not just the people that look like us or speak the same language. Mm -hmm. And like we said earlier, I think the more we educate ourselves, the more we'll start to realize that. And I hope so. I hope so. I do worry though, because I've been reading some polls about how like people want, you know, sustainable fashion and people want this, but they don't want to pay more money for their clothing. If we're going to get there, we all got to pay more money for our clothing. I hate to be the one to break it to you, but like our future, if it's going to be sustainable and ethical, it doesn't include $5 dresses or t-shirts for that matter. Because when I was a kid, we actually did pay more money for our clothing. That's the thing. I've seen this change within the last 20 years. When I was growing up in the nineties, I talk about this in my book, but 
one of the things that I wanted as a 13 year old was I wanted a pair of Oshkosh Bagash overalls. They used mm-hmm. to make these, these overalls in the U S they had an Oshkosh factory. Um, and they made them at adult sizes, which they no longer do. They now only make children's sizes and they're made overseas. They closed the Oshkosh factory, I believe. So mm-hmm. anyways, when I was 13, I really wanted a pair of those overalls and they were $50, which in today's prices, I ran it through an inflation calendar. That's 80 bucks. Yeah. Today, if you ask someone to pay 80 bucks for something, they'd be like, why can't they make it for 30? So like, I've actually seen the price of clothing get lower as, you know, I've grown up as I've, as I've become an adult. And I think that we have to get used to the idea that what we were paying in the nineties for our clothing was enabling fair wages and an ethical and sustainable landscape. If that's, if that's what we want, that's the place that we need to get back to. And you know what? I never for a second regret it getting those dungarees. I had to wait for my birthday, my overalls. I had to wait for my birthday. Somebody bought me a cheaper version from the same store. Mm-hmm. And I said, Oh, I, okay. I really want the Oshkosh ones. And I had my babysitting money. So I had to spend like 12 of my own dollars and I never regretted it for a minute. I was so happy. I wanted them so badly and I wore them until they fell apart, which is how you should treat your clothing. That's what clothing is supposed to look like. Um, And so we really have to get back to that place. And I guess it starts with people really thinking about these systems and starting to understand them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, just like you were saying there, I, I remember when I was growing up, you know, my, my mom never like lavishly spent money on clothes for us. You know, she bought us good forever pieces that would last, especially when it came to shoes. You know, she wanted to get like good shoes that'll last, you know? <laughs> and at the time it's like, well, you know, so-and-so is going to the mall every week and coming into class with, you know, all these new outfits. But when you start to appreciate, I guess, how hard you work for your dollar and when then you begin to spend it, when you purchase a forever piece, something that will last longer, I think, especially right now, you're going to start to appreciate it more than something you buy, a, that dress you buy for five bucks that's going to have a hole in it by, you know, Christmas. So, yeah. I, yeah. I think one of the things that some of the quality that you see in some of the stores today is so bad. And once you sort of start to like move away from that, for me personally, I can't go back. Like now when I go into stores that I used to frequent, the clothing feels horrible (laughs) you know the quality isn't there I tell people if you're really trying to like get off the boat with this like make sure next time you go shopping that you wear something that you really really like something that you know is good quality because what you automatically end up doing is comparing what's on the rack to what's already on your body and there's no incentive to take something that isn't good quality and pay money for it when you're wearing something that is. So there's all these little things that you can do to really sort of stop yourself from falling into the pitfalls of fast fashion, fast consumption. And I try and help people to sort of understand that. Definitely. And that's great. And, you know, Aja, I always like to conclude by asking with this being handling it, Um, and people are always just trying to navigate the ups and downs of life. You've had such an incredible career and I can't wait for this new book to come out again, Consumed. 
Has there been a piece of advice or a lesson that you've learned that's really helped you handle your life? Oh, what a massive question. (laughs) I guess your time is coming and success doesn't always show up at the same time for you as it shows up for other people. But if you're really lucky and you keep working at it, maybe one day it will show up. I love that. Amazing. And then where can people keep up with you and follow your journey? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at my name at Aja Barber, but if you want to support my work and get information, because I, I choose what I write about on Instagram. I don't take requests and people will message me and say, help me figure out where to shop. I want to know more about this. You can support me on Patreon and you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Uh, Every day on Patreon, I write, I have a community section where I go through and answer as many of the questions as I can. Sometimes if it's a good discussion, I bring it to the main page and we talk about it there. I've got a brand list of brands that I really like and and think are pretty good. Um, But we talk about these issues and, and not just how it, you know, pertains to fashion, but how it pertains to all of us. I do a newsletter, I do small business consulting, um, yeah, I just try and I, I never wanted to have brands on my Instagram because mm-hmm. that's a part of the consumerism cycle. Right. So like I never wanted to really talk about brands in that space because the minute I start doing that, you get served ads. And then once again, I've defeated the purpose of what I set out to do. So mm-hmm. Instagram is a no brand chat space, but Patreon, we talk about everything. So that is where you can find me. And in September, you'll see my books on the shelves if I uh, manage to finish it on time. Hurry up, Aja. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait. And I, I'm definitely, I can't wait to um, promote it because and read it. Um, because, you know, like I said earlier, there's so much to talk about within within the fashion industry. There's a lot to talk about. But then there's also a lot to discuss within sustainability and within sustainable fashion. So um, we talked about a lot in our conversation, but there's so much more to talk about. So um, the I conversation th- is massive and it just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it goes on for a long time. So um, there's a lot to be said and there's, there's a lot of room to grow. And, you know, if you're just sort of coming to the beginning of all of this, don't feel overwhelmed, just take a breather from buying so much and really wear what's in your wardrobe. But that's just one way to get started. Right. I completely agree. Well, Aja, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I hope you all enjoyed hearing from Aja and that you found her story and advice inspiring. I am just such a fan of Aja's work, and if you don't, I highly encourage you all to follow her on social media. Her handles are listed in the episode description below, so you can check them out. Thank you to Aja so much for coming on, and thank you listeners so much for tuning in. As always, let me know what you thought of our episode. You can reach us on Instagram at handlingitpodcast, and feel free to send us a message and let us hear your thoughts and suggestions. I'll see you next week with a brand new episode, but until then, keep staying safe with everything going on in the world right now and keep handling it. I'll talk to you soon.